But like, even if that's true, even if the wolf could smell the pregnancy, how would the wolf tell my father? You're a rich girl and you're gone too far cause Welcome back to Lyrics for Lunch, the show that always minds the magic. <laughs> mind is, that's always, mind is on the magic. The mind is magic. Mind, mind is, is the is magic. magic. Mind is the magic. magic is in your mind. I'm Aviv Rubenstein. I'm one of your hosts. This is a show where we do deep dives into famous or, you know, not so famous songs from music history because I don't know what the <laughs> fuck this song is. Um, and I'm joined this and every week, except for when she's got her gobs all fucked up. Um, <laughs> Lindsay Tucker. Hi, hi, Lindsay. Hi. 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 It's great to be back. I would say thanks for having me, but <laughs> thanks this for is having our show. <laughs> explain. Explain yourself. What the fuck happened to you? Oh, well, I don't really like talking about my trauma, but. Um... I just had a really bad wisdom tooth extraction. They couldn't get the tooth out. It was like, can't think of the word I'm trying to say. It was stuck to the bone. Impacted. I guess. I was trying to say like, like seared to the, fused, fused, fused to the bone. Um, they did not think it was impacted. It, it like, it was already coming out. Oh, geez. Like, did they try trying, tying a string to it and then slamming a door? Uh, I wish. This was just like two hours of me being awake while they were like sawing and drilling my bones and I could hear it and go to an oral surgeon for your wisdom teeth extractions. Even if they, your dentist says it's going to be easy, we can do it here. Don't listen. It's not true. Don't listen. It's not true. <laughs> this has been a public so, service announcement from Works for Lunch. Exactly. So I have a hole in my face that's slowly healing. I mean, basically all day, every day, it just feels like the left side of my head and eyeball and jaw and ear is going to explode. Oh, so good. Super fun. Yeah. Well, what are we talking about today, Lindsay? Today we'll be talking about the song The Mind is the Magic by Michael Jackson, written for Siegfried and Roy. Okay, so we literally could have chosen any Michael Jackson song. We've never done a Michael Jackson song. We could have done, we had so many options. And today we're doing The Mind is the Magic. But before we do that, we have a little bit of mailbag. This is from two, two things from uh, listener Amanda, formerly Amanda Kramers, no longer on Twitter, now Amanda Horn. First says the legendary Stardust Cowboy and writes, holy crap. I actually know of this guy. I found his song Paralyzed from the Wikipedia articles of worst songs of all time. And I've been using it to troll my friends for years. I had no idea that he had a Bowie connection. And she included a link to his song Paralyzed by the legendary Stardust Cowboys. And you want to take a quick listen? like some Captain Beefheart shit. It's just belligerent. I kind of like this. Wow. I'm not going to lie. All right, you're done. Um, it off. She goes on to say, 
Excited for the Bowie episode, I know nothing about him, but obviously I'm familiar with a few of his hits. He seems to have a dedicated following, even among millennials, but I missed that particular boat. Also, you get emails now. I deactivated Twitter. I'm sorry for whichever of you, Lindsay, has to deal with that now. <laughs> Love, Amanda. And just like a, just like a one minute later, <laughs> writes in, David Bowie wrote all the young dudes, double question mark. Yeah, David Bowie wrote all the young dudes. Which always reminds me of Clueless. And I didn't say that on the show. Clueless? Yeah, there's a part in Clueless where they're like playing all the young dudes and they're just like focused on these guys' butts with their saggy pants. And she's like, I do not. Oh, is that when they're too Bummer to my generation. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So my core memory of that song is I used to work at a restaurant in Newtown, Pennsylvania when I was in high school called the Avalon Cafe. Nice. And the boss, his name was Joe. And Joe was just just a douchebag. Just a douchebag. And he would talk like, hey, you talk like this. Hey, Aviv, you can have any drink you want in the store except for the Snapple because it cost me a dollar. So don't drink my Snapple. That's how he would, <laughs> that's how he would talk. And, and uh, we would be clean. I was cleaning up the kitchen and he was in there and, and all the young dudes was on the radio or the playlist or whatever it was. He's like, Aviv, I'll give you $100 if you can tell me who sings this song. And I incorrectly said David Bowie. And he's like, nah, you don't get your hundred dollars. And uh, David Boy actually wrote the song, so I was like, right-ish, right adjacent. Mm-hmm. But uh, he also used to like weirdly. We talk about like, I don't want to say grooming. Grooming is very strange. But he would like, I was like fifteen or sixteen, and he would say these like fucked up things to me, like out of nowhere. Similar scenario. We were like cleaning the kitchen, and he'd be like. Eh, Aviv, you ever get your asshole licked? What? I'm like, I'm like, what, Joe? How old were you? 16. And he was like in his 40s. And he was like, you're going to love it. I swear to God, you're going to get your asshole licked. And one day, you're going to get your asshole licked, and you're going to think of me, because I'll be the one that told you getting your asshole licked feels amazing. You're going to love it. That's fucked up. Yeah. I'm not okay with this. I am extremely not okay with this. Tell us about the doughboying. Yes. So so (laughs) last night, listeners of SVU will probably hear this again, but last night I was coming back from Seattle from a work trip and I was, you know, in my seat and I, I raised both arms above my head to stretch because flying sucks. And just a random woman walked by and gave me like, like a double two finger tap on my belly and said we're almost there and then just like kept going and uh she like double doughboyed me and i have no clue she i don't th- i i thought that she may have been a flight attendant it was very cold so they were like wearing jackets the flight mm-hmm. attendants were so it was like mm-hmm. tough to see to know who was flight staff and who wasn't but i don't i don't because i waited for her to like come back and she yeah. never did i never saw her again and so it was very, very strange. Non-consensual touching. Weird. Don't do it. Don't do it. Just, just don't even, do it. Even to Aviv. <laughs> to anyone. Okay. Hey, it's a Speaking of non-consensual touching, let's get back to the show. And, weirdly, I was working at the Avalon Cafe, which is now defunct, when Siegfried and Roy died. Oh, don't well, fucking look at me like I'm not about time. to do a transit when when Roy was mauled by that tiger. Oh, that's totally different. He lived for years after that. 
Did he really? Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. I'm well, glad fuck. you know nothing about this. <laughs> I clearly don't know. I thought, for, in, in my head, they like the tiger mauled both of them, which I know is clearly not true. <laughs> and they immediately died. Yeah. Uh, nope. Let's just do a disclaimer right at the front. Yes, the song is written by Michael Jackson. I'm going to do about 30 seconds on Michael Jackson and his relationship to Siegfried and Roy. But this show is about Siegfried and Roy. The reason I picked the song is because I wanted to talk about them. There, a, an article came out in The Atlantic a couple weeks ago titled The Original Tiger Kings. At the peak of their fame, they were arguably the most famous magicians since Houdini. And this was written by Chris Jones and Michael J. Mooney. So this article came out on October 13th, and I really liked it, and I wanted to do a show about it. So um, you'll hear me say from The Atlantic many times throughout this recording, um, that's me referencing this article. And it's interesting because I, I don't, I've, I've demonstrated that I clearly don't have a good grasp on Siegfried and Roy, mm-hmm. but I don't, I didn't consider them magicians. I didn't think that they were magicians. I thought that they just did like a tiger show. So Roy was the animal lover and Siegfried was a magician by trade. So it is November right now and this let me just do a quick plug for print journalism. This article, while it ran online on October 13th, is in the November issue of The Atlantic. And I bet you if you pick it up, it's going to have like a dope spread full of really fun photos. So go buy it. Siegfried and Roy were not known for, for being shrinking violets in their fashion. Correct. They're basically ABBA, but with tigers and lions. No bears. Oh, oh my. my. Okay, so Siegfried Fischbacher was born in Bavaria, Germany on June 13th, 1999. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I know you didn't say Fischfucker. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> but I heard Siegfried Fischfucker. Fischbacher. Bacher. Mm-hmm. Not fucker. Hey, did he fuck a fish? I don't know, maybe. <laughs> they had dolphins. Dolphins aren't fish. <laughs> They're mammals. <laughs> All right, so uh, he was born Bavaria, Germany. His mother was a housewife. His father was a professional painter who ended up as a prisoner of war in the Soviet Union in World War II. Did I say World War II already? I think I did. So Siegfried was born during World War II? Is that what you were saying? Yeah, 1939. So yeah, right at the beginning. And his father wound up becoming a prisoner of war. Yeah, but he didn't eventually come home. Also, like, worth noting that he was fighting for the wrong side. Yes. Both of their fathers fought in World War II for Germany. So, as the representative of all Judaism on this show, I am, I have a little bit of um, sympathy for, you know, young Germans who were conscripted into the army and, like, didn't, like, you can't say that all German soldiers in World War II were Nazis. But, like, they definitely weren't not Nazis. Yeah. So, according to Forbes, Siegfried and Roy were each born in Germany to fathers who served in the Eastern Front, on the Eastern Front in World War II, the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union, which is, Great. you know, one of the it is, it is what it bloodiest is, man. Yeah. <laughs> campaigns of the war. To cope with what they had seen and done, they both became alcoholics. Quote Roy, our fathers went into the war as one person and they came back as a different one. This is painfully common about 
anyone who sees war and has to do atrocious things. Weirdly, we mentioned this in our teenage dirtbag episode. So Siegfried started practicing magic as a way to get his father's attention as a child. And Roy became obsessed with animals. I, this, I, this is just a comedy biopic in the making, right? Where it's like, daddy was a Nazi and now he's an alcoholic. So I'll practice my magic to get his attention. I mean, I think that's a plot point in How I Met Your Mother with Barney. Barney's dad was a Nazi? <laughs> no, his dad. Um, no, his dad was distant. Was like I, a I distant d- alcoholic. <laughs> I do. Rem- I do remember this. Um, yeah, but it's like it's like very ludicrous, but also completely real. And happens right. So, um, yeah. So Roy kind of retreated into animal friends, and he claims his boyhood dog was half wolf, and that it once rescued him from quicksand. So I have to ask you: Is Roy your dad? <laughs> yes. <laughs> So, listeners, my dad claims to have owned a wolf in Israel, <laughs> and there are similarly like like not unintelligible nonsense wolf stories that he would tell me as a kid that I would like believe because I was five. Um, but yeah, my dad also claims to have owned a wolf. But wasn't there one something about it mm-hmm. saving him? It, it did not save him. It was. Pr- uh, it uh, it was living in his apartment, <laughs> and my da- and my dad uh broke both of his legs falling off of a mountain in the army, which actually did happen. And he the, he told the cleaning lady at the apartment building to like not go in because there's like a wolf inside, because he would conveniently just be like walking the wolf whenever the cleaning lady was there or something. <laughs> what? I don't okay, know. Man. Okay. And so he got so he got his twin brother, my uncle, to dress in my dad's clothes to like try to extract the wolf from the apartment and the wolf clearly could like tell the difference. So that wouldn't which like I couldn't do. Um <laughs> and so the story goes that the wolf that the cleaning lady goes into the apartment, the wolf holds the cleaning lady at bay for a certain amount of time that every time he tells the story gets bigger with its teeth to her throat. Yeah. And the only reason that the wolf did not kill the pregnant woman, uh, kill the cleaning lady was because that she was pregnant and the oh wolf God. could could smell the pregnancy. Ew. But like even if that's true, even if the wolf could smell the pregnancy, how would the wolf tell my father? Correct. <laughs> so like Yes, yeah, so that's 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 my tra- that's my trauma. That's why I'm a magician. <laughs> Well, um, Roy wrote about his birth on his website, which has now been taken down. Quote Roy. It was a Wednesday. I've heard the wartime story of my birth on October 3rd, 1944, so many times that it seems as though I can remember it. My mother, Joanna Horn, had the misfortune of being nine months pregnant when Allied bombings began to light up Bremerhaven and the neighboring city of Nordenham. Two major defense posts, like a blood-red torch. Houses were burning and everyone was screaming. Those that weren't buried under rubble rushed to the Weezer? Weezer? They rushed to the Weezer concert. (laughs) Where there were small boats and the comparative safety of the water. End quote. Now, allegedly, she put her other children in a basement, found a bicycle, and rode it to her sister's house where she gave birth to Roy. Is any of this true? I don't know. So let's go to a more credible source, The Atlantic. Roy was born in Akron, Ohio. (laughs) 
Siegfried Fischbacher met U E U W E U Ludwig Horn, later known as Roy, on a German cruise ship named the T S Bremen in 1959. Siegfried was 20 years old, strong-jawed, and working as a first-class steward. On certain evenings, he assumed a different name, Delmer the Magician, and performed for passengers. He had been practicing since he was a child and claimed that the first time his shattered alcoholic father acknowledged him was after he made a coin disappear. This is wild. This is fucking (laughs) walk the line wild. How did you do that? His father said. Siegfried spent the rest of his life chasing that feeling. Shut up. Shut up, everyone. You shut up. Roy was five years younger and hungry for adventure, having abandoned school and an equally unhappy childhood to work as a bellboy at sea. He had filled his own absence of paternal affection with animals and fantasy. One night on the ship, Roy watched Siegfried perform his magic and didn't seem impressed. However technically gifted Siegfried appeared, however handsome he was, his tricks were tired and ordinary, devoid of surprise or flair. His show included a hat, and that hat included a rabbit. If you could make a rabbit disappear, Roy asked, could you do the same thing with a cheetah? Siegfried said yes. So Roy invites Siegfried to his cabin across the hall. And inside is a cheetah named Chico. What? What? He was, but he was a steward. He snuck a cheetah onto the boat. But he was a steward. So it is literally Siegfried's job to be like, hey, you cannot bring that cheetah on board. Well, he didn't. This is um, this is wild. <laughs> so they performed their first show together with Chico aboard the cruise ship. Siegfried did the magic. Roy was the assistant. And the cat, according to the Atlantic, acted very much like a regular cat, only significantly larger and more dangerous. The captain was not too pleased that a teenage bellboy had snuck a cheetah onto the ship. The show was a hit with the audience. So I don't think I think he had little chance that the show must go on. However, there's differing differing accounts of this. Some people say he let them stay, and others the, have the reported the ship owner or whatever. Yeah, and yeah. then there's other reports that they got fired. I don't really know what happened. Okay, but but, this, but they did but, they did the show with a cheetah at least once, and it was a hit. Uh huh. Okay. Uh huh. So that kind of. Solidified. I'm like writing the screenplay <laughs> to this in my head as we go. I know. I know. This is unbelievable. I, I, need, I, need a, I need a job on that film. Yeah. So over Siegfried and Roy's next six decades together, the nature of their relationship was purposely opaque. This is from The Atlantic. Sure. Sometimes they appeared to be friends, sometimes lovers, sometimes rivals. With each other, they had no secrets. Quote, they literally communicate on stage with a glance, their manager, Bernie Human had said. They Bernie knew each other. Human? Human. Why <laughs> U M A N? That's a fake person. <laughs> they didn't have a manager. That was like that was like Roy answering the emails. Yeah, I'm Bernie Human. <laughs> we just look at each other and we know. We know. We all won. That's how that's how Lindsay and I communicate, listeners. All we have to do is lo- just one look and you know. Just one look. Just one meow, look. Meow meow. <laughs> our, our fathers were Nazis. They knew each other better than many of us know ourselves. Siegfried, the blonde one, was the magician, the engineer, the perfectionist, the restraint. Roy, with his jet black hair and occasional mustache, was the animal whisperer, the dreamer, the fabulous, the spark. I feel like it was yelling toward the end, but... (laughs) 
Uh, after the cruise gig, they went to Europe and they were building their following. Their act wasn't really spectacular. Like, Siegfried was, pr- even until his death, a very common magician. Mugis- <laughs> we're going to do a super cut of all the times that Lindsay tries to say magician and says mu- musician instead. Oh, my God. I mean, was, his tricks a, were pretty tired like they're the same tricks everyone does the thing that made their show fantastic was they had murderous gigantic animals in 1967 a talent scout invites them to las vegas where there was like a slightly more down market version of the follies berger follies burger follies burger (laughs) yeah so the 60s in vegas are a really interesting time because like sinatra's like new york's too cold in the winter baby and like would just kind of like like the, with this kind of oasis sprung out of the desert and they needed people to fill their their hotels. Um, yeah. Weirdly, so this is like more... the one good part of the Elvis movie. Oh, okay. Is that how you know how to pronounce it? Follies Burger? Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just saying a Follies Burger. I'm like, I'm pretty sure it's Bachelor. <laughs> I, don't, I think it's Burger. I've been to a Follies Burger. <laughs> well, a slightly more down version... Down market version of the Follies Bachelor, the Parisian review that made Josephine Baker famous, Josephine Baker famous, was taking off at the Tropicana. Okay, so I really want to show you this picture of um, Roy on the ship. This is Roy on the sh- on the ship as a teenager. Well, I okay. Who's to say if he's really on the ship? But he's wearing his steward outfit, and <laughs> he's got the cheese. Siegfried was the steward. Oh, he's a bellhop. He's wearing his bellhop outfit. Oh, I think I've seen this photo. Really? Yeah, weirdly. So so what we're looking at is like a bellhop, like a pretty young man and a bellhop with like what appears to be a cheetah sitting on his lap. And they're both just like casually looking at the camera. But like this photo looks like like you could replace him. Yeah, you could replace him with like Twiggy and it would be like the the a weird kind of outsider fashion thing from the 60s. <laughs> and he like has like kind of pretty model features. Yeah. He does. Good-looking guy. Good-looking guy. I only kind of recognized him as like a old old man with like a fi- like a mane of hair, Spiky you know. Spiky hair. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so it's weird to see him like young and hot. All right, this is from The Atlantic again. The idea of a hot ticket in Mob Run Las Vegas was Frank Sinatra belting out tunes next to a coked-up Sammy Davis Jr. and a line of topless showgirls with feather hairdresses. It wasn't clear how well a pair of swashbuckling German magicians with a cheetah, none of whom spoke English, might appeal to the (laughs) cigar-chomping set. Wait, I I want to I want to we are we're really anti like music journalists in here, so I want to point out a very <laughs> subtle joke in that sentence. Can you read it again? It wasn't clear how well a pair of swashbuckling German magicians with a cheetah, none of whom spoke English, might appear to the cigar chomping set. Okay, so a copy editor should say neither of them speak English because you're referring to two people, the the, the two Germans. But right. when you say none, that implies three. Includes the cheetah. <laughs> that includes the cheetah, which is like a very funny grammar joke. Good job, everyone. I love the Atlantic. It ain't no Rolling Stone. <laughs> All right. So Siegfried and Roy were placed 14th on a long bill between some strongman and a comic xylophonist. Okay. 
I'm exilophonist. I got a new career path. I quit. <laughs> I quit. I quit the show. <laughs> Siegfried didn't really care for Las Vegas. He wanted to return to Europe, and Roy spent the rest of his life trying to make Siegfried feel more at home, nervous that maybe he would one day decide to leave. <sighs> yeah. It's just sad, right? Because you had mentioned that, like, you know, the nature of their relationship was kind of opaque. Mm-hmm. And, and if Siegfried felt that Roy was, you know, he was uh, going to leave at any point, like, it feels like that may have translated into... Roy felt that Siegfried might leave. Right, but sorry. Yeah. Roy felt that Siegfried would leave at any point. That feels like that opaqueness may have continued on into into the relationship between the two of them you know mm-hmm. um well they moved into a mansion they called the jungle palace just north of town <laughs> okay. um so it's moroccan themed according to the atlantic it was stuffed with curios from around the world is this where we got gays it just feels like all of like they, they're like inventing all of the the ultra um stereotypical like the things that we th- think and say about like gay men, right? I don't know. You know, Siegfried and Roy were never like out in the modern sense, according to the Atlantic, but they lived together through their entire adult lives and they were like clearly partners and lovers. History will call them best friends, close friends. <laughs> but they had like a mansion full of like knickknacks from around the world. Like, oh, they had two mansions. Oh, good. And but they lived together. Yeah. But they also. They had two houses that, like, kind of wrapped around a courtyard and met in the middle. Their houses held hands. <laughs> okay, the library has a button that opens a secret door as a hidden speaker announces Sarmadi. What does that mean? Look that up. Sarmadi? Yeah. It's got to be a German word, because they use it later. S-A-R-M-O-T-I. Sarmotti. Siegfried and Roy, masters of the impossible. It is an no acronym. Way. <laughs> Um, I can't believe that these writers did not explain that in this article. <laughs> that fucking rules. Yeah, so their <laughs> foundation is the Sarmoti Foundation, and uh, they had a, am I spoiling to say that they had a cartoon? No, please go. In go 1996, they had, a, they had a cartoon, The Legend of Sarmoti, colon, Siegfried and Roy. Okay, so this is on one of the streaming services. Holy I was trying shit. to find like a sick read and Roy documentary, and I I could like only find the cartoon. <laughs> you, came, you 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 came across the cartoon. Uh, all right, so a massive mural over Siegfried's bed features a young nude version of himself holding two cheetahs on chains, staring down an evil sorcerer. Yeah. So me too. So that's the Jungle Palace, and then they later built what they called Little Bavaria, which was eighty acres of desert that they turned into a sprawling compound. Quote, so artificially lush that Siegfried could close his eyes and imagine he was back in Germany listening to bird song. Do not like Little Bavaria. They tried to do that in Argentina. They did? Yeah, that's where all the uh, the Nazis fled to. Oh, I don't know why I thought you were talking about Siegfried and Roy. I'm like, when did they go to Argentina? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I had a quote from... Siegfried or Roy, but I forgot to figure out which one said this. One of them said this in 2013. This is a hundred acres and we have all the water rights, which is why we can build the big pools. We could not have built Little Bavaria today. Oh, Siegfried said this. 
There are too many restrictions out here. You are not in Las Vegas. There is a center house where we spend time together that overlooks a lake-sized pool. We have houses on each side, one for Roy and one for me. They are like two arms wrapped around each other that meet in the middle. They are holding hands. (laughs) But before they had all the money to do all that, they would take drives to Venice Beach, where, fun fact, they befriended Arnold Schwarzenegger. I love this. And they would, like, entertain Arnold's mom. This has nothing we, to do with the story, but we are definitely in the in the bi- in the section of the biopic where the we get all the cameos. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Siegfried Roy, this is President Richard Nixon. You know whatever it is. <laughs> oh, there are there will be plenty of those cameos very soon. Fuck yeah! So this guy Frank Lefty Rosenthal, who was the inspiration for Robert De Niro's character in Casino. In Casino, yes. He brought the entire show over to the Stardust, and this is 1978. Yeah, so they got their names up in lights for the first time. Big lights. Uh, and then the Stardust was replaced with the Echelon in 2006, but Siegfried and Roy were long gone by then. The, the, the hotel itself, was the name was changed to mm-hmm. the Echelon. Mm-hmm. Is that what you're saying? Mm-hmm. The hotel gotcha. was changed to the Echelon. Because I couldn't tell whether you meant they replaced Siegfried and Roy with something called the Echelon. Back in 1981, they moved to the now-demolished Frontier, where they headlined their first full-length variety show, which was called Beyond Belief. Beyond Belief. They still weren't, like, great at speaking English. According to Roy, they eventually learned English by watching the Flintstones. That fucks. (laughs) I I fucking hope that they're, like, walking around their fucking hand-holding mansions being like, yabba-dabba-doo, Roy. (laughs) Um, okay, back to the Atlantic. They wrote out their extremely 80s version of the 80s. Here's your cameo section. Barbara Streisand, Elizabeth Taylor, Sylvester Stallone, Dolly Partner, Dolly Partner, Dolly Parton, and Robin Williams came to see them perform. They were granted audiences with no fewer than three presidents, Carter, Reagan, and the first Bush, and for good measure, Pope John Paul II. Michael Jackson wrote and recorded Mind is the Magic, which would become their theme song as a personal favor. Okay, so. You ready to hear it? I need, yes. Siegfried and Roy! <laughs> is, <laughs> is that the song? <laughs> Not, no. <laughs> I cannot believe, so like, like meeting Jimmy Carter is funny because it's like <laughs> this peanut farmer from Georgia being like, who are, who are these guys? <laughs> This reminds me of something I'm trying to place what. Oh, I know what it reminds me of. It reminds me of the the kind of, but not really. It reminds me of the uh, Powerline song Eye to Eye from the Goofy movie. Can you give me a little sing it? If we listen to each other's hearts. Oh, 
I'm like, I want to do a show about this. Is there a song about Siegfried and Roy? Uh-huh. <laughs> Holy shit. So this song feels very like 1993 to me. But it was from what? 1983. Is it? 1989. Oh, okay. Trailblazer again. Alright, I'm warming up to it. Come Are you on. sure you're not going to be listening to this later? I'm driving around. No, I'm not sure. Windows down. don't like the tiger sound effects we're telling shadowing <laughs> yeah yeah we're foreshadowing yeah I'm, I'm, I've completely done a end of their show it was unreleased for the longest time <laughs> can't imagine why 
<laughs> it was written with Brian Lauren in 1989 for the Beyond, Beyond Belief show. Michael gave his permissions for a first exclusive release to Siegfried and Roy in 1995 for their album Dreams and Illusions, which was released in Europe. Yikes. So do you want to like read the lyrics? Yeah. <laughs> I would love I would love to. Okay, good. Mind is the magic. Come into me. No. <laughs> I know mystical gardens, orchids, or and violets. Oh, orchards and violets. All mysteries are parted. Life is a mirage ghost. Imagination. <laughs> pure inspiration called justification. Like, what does that even mean? Nope, I don't know. I know what come <laughs> into me means, but other than that. <laughs> Nothing's impossible. Nothing's concealed. Everything here is for real. What gives fantastic ghouls all in your head? Who creates wonders like nobody can? Siegfried and Roy. You know it's Siegfried and Roy. So be it. Siegfried and Roy. I'm gonna. Siegfried and Roy. <laughs> when it's Siegfried and Roy, the mind of a magic intrude. This must be magician. I don't know. I don't, this is bizarre. Your own thoughts play the game in the magical wonders they do. The mind in the magic is you. Move of the head and I'll change your emotions. Strange things appear from euphorics, devotions. Everything's happening. Nothing's unreal. Hallucinating the mind in the real. Seeing black panthers that suddenly fly. White tigers stalking your mind. Hallucinating the, thi hallucinating the things that you see. This kind of magic's so hard to believe. Because when it's Siegfried and Roy, it's the mind of a magic and true. Your own thoughts play the game in the magical wonders they do. The mind in the magic is you. Wow. That's basically just it. Wow. Because it just it. repeats. Yeah. Wow. Hallucinations, the game of this kind, this kind of magic throws mind. Throws mind. Okay, so um, the pair have said that they had a special bond with Jackson. He often attended their shows. They would introduce him to the audience. Once, while performing in Japan, the introduction of Jackson almost caused a riot. Sure. Quote Siegfried, I introduced Michael and the fans went crazy. People were jumping over barriers. We had to stop the show. Um, back when Jackson died in 2009, Siegfried went on record to declare like what a big loss it was. And sure. then... I just want to share this 2016 Facebook post with you. Oh, it's like a 18, it's a 19 minute video. It's like a, it's like playing like a clip show and it's the song. And what does it say though? Read, read what they wrote. It says, dear Michael, happy birthday. We were all thinking of you, a lot of you on your special day. We wish we could have the opportunity to have 100 more years together, but in our minds, we will 101 more days. Oh, 101 more days. Your presence is always with us. The three tigers born in Japan on the 4th of July. We were patriotic and named them red, white, and blue. You were the godfather of them all. Sarmoti from your friends in magic, Siegfried and Roy. Is that fucking weird? Wow. Wow. And then the, the photo compilation is just repeating photos of them. Yeah, it's like four different photos. With that's tigers. It. 
and it just keeps repeating for but it looks like they're holding red white and blue okay so we're just gonna move on from michael jackson because what do we have to say well you probably have a lot to say but that's for its own episode for another day yeah so do you remember steve Wynn from when we lived in boston or just like from yeah the casino guy (laughs) yeah isn't he like a crazy republican donor or something too He's he's definitely crazy. Sick feet and rye. Sick feet and rye. Basically, what happened in Boston was he was like vying for this single casino permit. Mm-hmm. It was him versus Suffolk Downs, and he was like wooing Robert Kraft and the Everett. Robert Kraft is the owner of the New England the Patriots. Patriots. Yeah, um, who also has a lot of real estate holdings, and um, he was rubbing elbows with the city of Everett mayor, Carlo de Maria. Uh, so he wins. And then he builds a 27 story hotel casino on the mystic river in Everett. Right where I used to, um, right near where I used to work. Oh, really? Yeah. But like the whole thing was riddled with controversy. The, yeah, the Massachusetts gaming commission, Stephen Crosby had to resign amid claims that he was biased in favor of win. In January of 2018, dozens of Wynn's employees accused him of a decades-long pattern of sexual misconduct and claimed that his company had covered for him Catholic church style, according to Boston Magazine, my former employer. Mm. So the whole thing in Everett just went down in flames. In 2022, it was acquired by Realty Income Corporation and the casino and the land it sits on have been deemed cursed. Um, like this whole other thing involving like Aaron Brockovich level politician cover up. So, Jesus. um, yeah, Steve Wynn has had a bit of a fall from grace, but in the late eighties, he was in his prime in 1986. He announced he was building the first new hotel slash casino in Las Vegas in 15 years. And Siegfried and Roy wanted a piece of that. So according to the Atlantic, Wynn had been quietly assembling an enormous property on the Strip, 110 prime acres just north of Caesar's Palace. It would have 3,000 rooms, making one of the biggest hotels in the world. So Siegfried and Roy wanted Wynn to build them a theater, and he did. A $30 million theater custom-made to their specifications with a two-bedroom apartment upstairs and a stage big enough for that giant mechanical dragon thing that they had. Sure. I, I don't can't picture the giant mechanical dragon, but it does not surprise me that they had one. They had one. It was ridiculous. They had this whole act where they would like fight it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, Leg- <laughs> masters of the infinite or whatever you the fuck us. they. Were. Yeah. <laughs> um, from Boston Magazine, the Mirage, Treasure Island, and the Bellagio were all wind projects that transformed the Strip from a grungy backwater cow town to the glitzy hedonistic pleasure land we all know and love or loathe today. All of these places were five star, best in class resorts, lauded even by snooty travel magazines. In short, if you were looking for Lux, Wynn was your man. He'd also conquered Atlantic City and in the 2000s started opening casinos in Macau. It wasn't just the money. Wynn was glamorous, too. His art transactions, a $155 million sale of a Picasso masterpiece, for example, made national headlines. His friends, Steven Spielberg, Sly Stallone, Clint Eastwood, were A-listers. In the 60s, when he first set foot in Vegas, he quickly became Frank Sinatra's young new pal. The Rat Pack's glam rubbed off on him, and it never quite faded. Even his voice, a seductive baritone rasp, seems piped in from that era idioms and all when something is bad Wynn calls it the pits if he likes it it's dandy you can almost hear him wink it seems like um the terry benedict character from 
Ocean's Eleven is based on. Oh, sure. Steve Wynn. Yeah. Okay, from the Atlantic. Together, meaning Wynn and Siegfried and Roy, together they could put on a new kind of Las Vegas show, a spectacle, dramatic and gorgeous, one that families could attend without crudeness or nudity or sin, just magic, great, big, beautiful magic. Siegfried and Roy would perform there and only there for the rest of their careers, becoming more than entertainers in the process. They would become a vision, an idea, a thumbtack in mental maps of people all over the world. Correct. They would make Las Vegas into something grander than a row of glorified gambling halls. They would turn it into the place where dreams really did come true. The Mirage. They they definitely, like, they feel as integral to the DNA of Las Vegas as, like, Sinatra did 20 or 30 years prior. Yeah. Um, by the way, are we done with Steve Wynn for a second? Because I can... Uh, I yeah. Can, I remember... You figured out? <laughs> yeah. Why he's evil? So, uh, he was a big Donald Trump guy. Yeah. And uh, after Trump was elected, asterisk, citation needed, uh, Wynn was named finance chairman of the RNC. He then lobbied uh, President Trump on behalf of the Chinese government to return a, a Chinese dissident to China. And then he resigned from the finance chairman of the RNC amid sexual misconduct allegations. And then in 2021, the government, the Department of Justice ordered him to register as a foreign agent of China. Wow. I didn't even hear about that foreign agent shit. Yeah, it's uh, the case was eventually dismissed in, Oct- in October of this year. They didn't determine whether Wynn actually acted as a foreign agent, but ruled he could not be retroactively compelled to register after his alleged relationship with the Chinese government had ended. So, so it's, not that they, it's not that they proved he didn't do it. All right. These are not good people we're talking about. No, here. certainly not. So the Mirage opened in 1989, and it was immediately a massive success. Siegfried and Roy played two shows a night, six nights a week, to nearly 800,000 people a year, bringing in an estimated 40 to 45 million per year. That's a lot of money. That's along with my, a lot of money. I, I'm trying to imagine like what they were paid. They were probably paid like five to ten million dollars a year, right? They're still making Steve Wynn a ton of money. Yeah, I have no idea how much they made, but they were making win a butt ton. And it's tough to quantify people who like come to Vegas to see Siegfried and Roy and then drop a lot of money on hotels and alcohol and gambling and all this other stuff, too. Exactly. So it's like probably an order of magnitude greater than that. Because the $45 million is just the ticket sales, right? It's just the tickets. Nothing about how many people it drew to Vegas and how much yeah. they spent on gambling, food, hotels. It's incredible. It's an incredible amount of money. And then kind of how what we were touching on is like they changed Vegas. So the old casinos where that had where they had become famous were getting demolished and clearing the way for hotels that essentially wanted to be the Mirage. So you had the Excalibur, Luxor, New York, New York, Paris, the Venetian. They all had their anchor entertainment and a lot of them were musicians. Magicians. Magicians. <laughs> the fuck is wrong with me? A lot of them were magicians. Um. Okay. Yeah, this is very weird. It's very it's weird, weird that they're like, hey, these couple of German dudes, we get to remake this entire city in your image. I know. 
Magic is cool now. Magic was never not cool. How dare you? Okay. Okay. So by the mid-90s, they'd basically amassed a zoo. They had big cats, pythons, alpacas, swans, horses, goats, and a turkey named Merlin. A dragon that they fought nightly. (laughs) A turkey dragon. Sure. So I've already told you a bit about Jungle Palace and Little Bavaria. The Jungle Palace was, quote, Roy's vision of the habitat he wanted to build for the white tigers, said Siegfried. I always envisioned something Bavarian, green and rocky, but Roy, well, he creates his own world, and you can only assume it's not going to be like anyone else's. I know exactly what it should be, he told me. I'd like to give the tigers an environment in which everything is snow white. We had endless fights over this. (laughs) So they built both. They just built them both. Great. Why not? Let the tigers choose. (laughs) Um, Siegfried told Annette Tappert in her 1992 biography, Siegfried and Roy Mastering the Impossible. In a way, we've transported as much of Germany as possible to Las Vegas. On 80 acres in the middle of the desert, we built a Bavarian cottage and created a landscape that is a reminder of my Bavarian upbringing. Close the gates and you're in southern Germany. The animals lived on their estate until 1996 when their secret garden was built at the Mirage. Okay. I don't know how secret that garden was, but okay. I know. Um, It's still in operation today. You can like go to it and they they call it an animal sanctuary, but like, yeah, I was about to say. (laughs) In in the desert in Las Vegas? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Steve Wynn would like take his lunch next to the dolphins because he liked their smooth, slippery bodies. (laughs) Yeah. Um, both Siegfried and Roy had intense communication styles. Siegfried was known of kind of being a tyrant. And Roy was very loud, like always shouting regardless of his mood. <laughs> okay. The staff was frightened of Siegfried. He was obsessive about the tiniest details. And like you did not want to get called into his dressing room after a show. Okay. And like who would be, I guess like they had a ton of staff making their shows run. So it would be like. Yeah, you, like over you were 100. late on the lighting cue and you just got like fucking fucked. Yeah. And Siegfried didn't really even like the animals, said the, <laughs> the Atlantic okay. says. <laughs> okay, sure. They were props, says Melody Hitchison, who worked on the show for years. After the cheetah and the leopard, Roy somehow acquired a lion from Puerto Rico. <laughs> dot, 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 a lion from Puerto Rico. <laughs> Quote the Atlantic. Lions, he found out, never really lose their predatory instinct. They live to hunt. They're not the best pets. We're Weird. Sitting, we're setting up ourselves not to succeed if we try to move a lion around multiple times a day. Hitches and told the Atlantic. But tigers are far more easy to please, she said. No, they're not. Like, <laughs> tigers are also predators. Spoiler alert. <laughs> They had dozens of tigers, many of them white, in the secret garden. The classic image of Siegfried and Roy is like them with their long hair amid two white tigers. Right. And That's how they show Roy, up on The Simpsons. Bro, wait, what happened on The Simpsons? They just like appear on The Simpsons and they have two white tigers with them. Okay. Um, Roy often claimed that white tigers were a distinct subspecies of tiger. But that's not true. No, yeah. I don't think so. Um, according to the Atlantic, every white tiger in the United States is believed to be a descendant of one mutant male Bengal tiger that was captured in the wild in India as a cub. Okay. A genetic anomaly named Mohan. <laughs> and then he was bred with his daughter to make more white tigers. 
Maybe that's why the tigers are not are not great hunters is because they're all fucking inbred as shit. Yeah. Okay, so this is this is where it gets a little bit even weirder to me. So of Siegfried oh, and Roy's tigers, Roy was at every birth. Why would the first be? thing they saw was his face? The right. first sound they heard was his voice. So he's, he's like imprinting on them. But he yelled everything he ever said. <laughs> Baby tiger! Hello, Mr. Tiger. Hi! I'm your papa. It's me! Your papa! Your, your dad. <laughs> I will be better to you than my father was to me. He was a drunk Nazi. <laughs> when they were just three weeks old, he would bring them to the live shows and let the audience pet them. This is a thing, right? This is like very often happened in the Tiger King too, where the where the cubs would you could just like pass them around because they can't hurt you, right? I feel like, but when you're training animals, I think it's like technically you want to like socialize them to people, right? Like that's yeah part of the thing. Like you shouldn't train tiger, you shouldn't try to domesticate tigers, but like it seems like he's doing it the proper way. Question mark. I don't know if there is a proper way. Is there a proper way? I don't know. Okay, so they slept in beds, they swam in pools, and Roy rode on their backs. Great. On October 3rd, 2003, a freshly 59-year-old Roy was mauled by a white tiger named Manticore and left partially paralyzed. I forgot it was the tiger was named Manticore. (laughs) Yeah, this sparked a lot of debate over whether what they were doing was good or not. Yeah. Uh, the mauling happened during part of the show called The Rapport, which was a quiet interlude that was designed to let the performers catch their breath. They're running around, like running through tunnels, you know, all these illusions. Mm-hmm. It's, the Atlantic said that they each covered five miles of ground during one single show. I, I, I probably believe it. All right. So they designed this part of the show called The Rapport so they can kind of catch a break. And then what happens during this is Roy would walk a white tiger into the spotlight on the stage and introduce it to the audience. So that night, he told the crowd that it was Manticore's first time on stage. It was Manticore's first time on stage? That was a lie. Oh. <laughs> Roy, you got me good, you motherfucker. <laughs> Uh, Manticore was seven years old and had performed the rapport more than 2,000 times, the Atlantic reported. Two, excuse me, thousand times? 2,000 times. So seven years times 2,000 is like almost every day of his life. Take it up with the writers. No, no, I'm, but I, I believe it. I used to fact check for the... For the Atlantic, and I can tell you, it's a very stringent fact-checking process. Yeah. So, so what I'm saying, if you were alive for seven years, you've been alive for two thousand five hundred and fifty-seven days, give or take. And if you did this show two thousand times, that's basically five days a week for your entire life. That is fucking animal abuse. <laughs> so during those thousands of times. Every time Roy walked Manticore in a circle, paused, crouched down, put a microphone to the tiger's mouth, and asked him to speak. And he would, like, roar or something? He would growl. Okay. And then when Roy stood back up, Manticore, who is seven feet tall and 400 pounds, would put his paws on Roy's shoulders, and then they would dance across the stage and exit to the left. Okay. People literally cried at this. Simple enough trick, yes. 
So on the night of October 3rd, the performance of the report was off from the beginning. The tiger missed a mark seconds into the act, and Roy asked him what's wrong. Yeah. And tried to correct his position on stage by steering him with his arm, Mm -hmm. rather than walking him in the circle into his correct position, which was customary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I understand. Like, this is like, you know, imagine it's a horse, right? You can't just, like, push a horse over to their mark. Yeah. So Chris Lawrence was one of the animal handlers who was watching in the wings that night. He saw Manticore's whiskers tense and lengthen and his ears perked up before he nipped at Roy's hand. So he nipped at Roy's hand before the quote, the mauling. Mm-hmm. And Roy, who had been doing this for 30 years or whatever, is like, I have control over the situation because I'm Roy and clearly did not. What he did was he told the tiger no and bopped him on the head with its microphone, with his microphone. Because this is in front of people. Yeah. So he's still, so like there's, there's that element too where you have to, it has to still be part of the show. Mm-hmm. This feels like, this feels very much like you're, you're receiving the list of the things that went wrong before the Challenger disaster. And you're <laughs> like, at any moment, you could just sit, stop this. You could have just stopped, right? Yeah. Um, okay, I'm going to read it from the Atlantic. So he bops him on the head with the microphone. Now I'm reading from the Atlantic. Great. Because the microphone was on, the sound echoed around the theater, which had gone yeah. pin drop silent. Yeah. Lawrence, who had been reluctant to go on stage, spoiling the illusion that Roy alone controlled the animals with his special powers, now felt compelled to intervene, trying to distract the tiger with soothing pats and cubes of steak. But Manticore remained fixated on Roy. The huge cat swiped at the tiny man, knocking him off his high-heeled feet and sinking his teeth into Roy's neck. Oh, Blood wow. spurted from the puncture wounds. But Roy could still push out enough air to scream, witnesses said, Good. when he was dragged by the tiger to their usual exit, stage left. Someone sprayed Manticore with a fire extinguisher, and the animal finally released Roy's limp body before handlers corralled the tiger into a cage where he began looking for the dinner he normally received after a performance. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack with this with this thing right mm-hmm. this is jurassic park this is it someone is jurassic park it's someone trying to exert control over an animal and it's and the, and they've jumped off a cliff with this animal and they're halfway down and they're saying well so so far so good and this was like always bound to happen uh if anyone has seen the movie uh the movie nope this is thing that happens at gordy's house like Animals are animals. They have millions of years of evolution. And whatever that bop on the nose did reminded Manticore that he was an animal. But interestingly enough, the rumor that went around after this happened. So clearly there's like the people that are like, tiger's dangerous. Put him down. What are you? Whatever. And there are other people that I remember hearing that the tiger was like trying to protect him or like pick him up like a like a mother would pick up a a cub and that's why it like bit Mm -hmm. him in the neck but like Mm -hmm. that doesn't actually make sense it's like that's not a what happened and b like tigers don't puncture their kids arteries when they're picking them up by their neck so like why would they not have the bite the 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 bite limitations to do that if he was trying to protect roy from something which is yeah so 
We'll get to that. I'll bring you there. Okay. Um, but right now, Roy is being rushed to the hospital where he flatlines three times during surgery. Jesus Christ. That led to permanent brain damage and partial paralysis. It took him months to learn how to talk, walk, and swallow again. So naturally, Siegfried and Roy closed down their show, and they only performed together one other time at a charity show in 2009. So like I'm trying, I like I have a lot. I'm, I'm I feel conflicted because I have a ton of sympathy for someone who gets like mauled by a tiger. But like you've done ten thousand tiger shows, it was kind of bound to happen, and you like you're you're literally poking the bear. Mm-hmm. And at their last show in '09, in '09, who did they bring out? Manticore. Oh, it's good that Manticore wasn't put down. Oh no, fault. they like lived with him. They yeah. kept living with him. They're like, he's our best friend. He tried I mean, to save Roy. Okay, so they so they did say <laughs> that there was like a thing, right? That was like misinformation yeah. that they put out that they that he tried to save Roy. Okay. That was their PR campaign. Okay. Well then that's where I heard it from. <laughs> um, all right. Well, that was two thousand nine. Then in two thousand ten, are you ready for that? Roy was sued by one of his former assistants, Oliver Price. In a complaint filed in Nevada's Clark County Court on September 17th, Price claimed that both Siegfried and Roy made repeated requests for sex, that Roy made sexual advances toward all male assistants, that he forced his assistants to join him in watching porn videos at night, that that he groped Price inside and outside of his clothing. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, the legal docs also said that surveillance vid- surveillance videos of Siegfried and Roy's workplace show rampant sexual harassment, sexual assaults, lewd and lascivious conduct, among other specific sex acts. Yeah, I mean, of like, what do you get when you take two coked out Germans and give them forty five million dollars a year? Sex predators? I guess. I mean, yes, right? It's the it's the 80s and 90s. They're clearly on drugs. They think that they can control the the state of the universe. Like, right. I get it. They I mean, they're gods. They think they're gods. It doesn't surprise me, even in the slightest bit. This was from ABC. According to the complaint, a result of Horn's, Horn is Roy. So according to the complaint, as a result of Roy's alleged harassment, Priest now suffers from anxiety so extreme that he's outfitted his home with multiple alarm systems, cameras, and bulletproof windows at a cost of $30,000. Okay. Um, also, that his relationship with his wife, Beatrice, who was named as a plaintiff in the lawsuit, or who was named as a plaintiff in the lawsuit, has been irreparably damaged. And they're seeking more, they sought more than $100,000 in damages. It feels so weird to like, you know, being assaulted is is so, you know, morally and kind of like universally horrible. And it always feels very weird to have to put that in dollars and cents. Mm-hmm. Like it like by definition is like it makes it feel very petty. Right. And so it's not this guy's fault, of course, that he has to be like, well. I need a hundred thousand dollars to feel better, but like, what else are you going to like? What other thing could he possibly say? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, there's also with like victims who come out, I feel like 
they're doing a service to other victims. I 100%. But they also can't say, all I want to do is for the truth to come out and I don't want any money because the, or, or recourse or whatever because then there's no punishment for the people who commit these crimes. And so like, it's weird that we have to quantify it in this way in order for there to be any sort of like punishment. Right. Punishment's either jail or money. That's it. I mean, jail would be fine. Jail would be great. But he's, he's like fucking paralyzed. <laughs> Roy's attorney was asked to respond to the lawsuit and said no comment. Great. In 2011, the case was thrown out. According to the Las Vegas Sun, U.S. District Judge Roger Hunt in Las Vegas this week ordered attorneys for Oliver Priest, a former personal assistant to Roy Horn, and for Priest's wife Beatrice to pay the 37415 as a sanction for asserting baseless legal claims against Roy Horn and a company owned by Siegfried and Roy. Didn't they have surveillance videos of, of the assaults happening? Exactly. So in 2012, a video surfaced of the two of them sexually assaulting employees. And this is not on the internet from what I can tell. I can't imagine I why. Find it. The, well, they're, they have a lot of money and probably got it removed from the internet, which is a, a thing that is possible. Well, um, TMZ had it for a brief stint and they did a dramatic retelling. So would you oh, like to read it? shit. <laughs> I mean, no, but sure. Graphic video showing Roy Horn of Siegfried and Roy groping employees, grabbing their junk, good job TMZ, and squeezing their nipples is being shopped, TMZ has learned. We have seen the video and it's extremely disturbing. Roy, who was mauled by a tiger in 2003, has been going through rehab to strengthen his left side, because he's partially paralyzed, but physical therapists tell us that Roy's right side is extremely strong. And the video clearly shows Roy sexually assaulting the male therapists. The video shot in 2010 shows the following. As a caretaker helps Roy to the bathroom, Horn shoves his hand into the man's butt crack in an aggressive manner. On another trip to the bathroom, Roy thrusts his rear end into the male caretaker's crotch. In two clips, Roy grabs the genitals of two male caretakers. Roy goes under the shirt of one caretaker and appears to tweak his nipples. The caretaker appears to writhe in pain. It appears Roy gets frustrated when the caretakers and violently whips him with an oxygen tube. Roy manhandles one of the caretakers and forcibly kisses him on the mouth. The three male caretakers in the video tell TMZ that they're all straight. Who cares? And they all have families. They've sued Roy in Nevada court for alleged sexual assaults. The caretakers also tell us that they went to the cops recently to file a crime report. Crime report? Uh, But they were told the one-year criminal statute of limitations had run out. They reached out to Roy. So far, no comment. Yeah. So, a couple things. Thing one, this is not a defense of Roy in the least. However, I understand the person who is on top of the world who gets basically their their left side taken away and they now need to be held to the bathroom i understand how he is lashing out in this like violent sexual way to show that he still has control over people which is like something that he clearly cared about when he was able-bodied so it's like definitely doesn't make it right but it makes it really sad it's like fucking like kind of pathetic yeah you know um, mm-hmm. which is sad, and I don't want to have sympathy for him in this context, but like it's it's pathetic, 
that he feels the need to do this. But I kind of feel that way about anyone who like feels the need to sexually assault someone is like how fucking how fucking small. Are we are we calling it a need? I mean, I feel feels like- the need, feels the need, feels the urge, the compulsion, whatever. They feel entitled. Entitled. That's also true, right? That is that is a, an an apt reframing of that. And he also felt entitled, right? He's even though he is, you know, partially paralyzed he's still capital r roy pretty pretty fucked pretty bleak yeah sorry and and it's and it and it it doesn't it's not surprising that someone who thinks that they can control wild animals thinks that they can control people not percent. as the years went on the rumors continued running rampant about what happened in the manticore attack and the theories range from plausible to like full-on QAnon. QAnon as in as can I can I can I figure okay this is this is the craziest theory I can think of the guy who claimed he was sexually assaulted who clearly wasn't because all sexual assault victims are making it up put Manticore up to mauling Roy because he was unhappy with his job or for revenge or something is that in there inside job is one of the theories of course of fucking of course it was There's an eight-episode Apple podcast called Wild Things that explores the incident and some of the theories and Jeez. interviews investigators and people who worked on the show. So that's pretty fun if you want to check that out. <laughs> After the attack, the U.S. Department of Agriculture launched an official inquiry to try to determine what happened. Um, like, was it really an accident? Was there foul play? Was it sure. an inside job? It, it no, was a tiger, guys. It was a tiger. <laughs> Had someone distracted Manticore on purpose? Uh, one theory was that someone released a scent to disrupt Shut the tiger. Up. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> Another one was that the tiger got distracted by someone's someone in the audience's beehive hairdo. Oh, I actually heard this one, or their perfume, or something. I've I've beehive heard this theory that it was like someone scent. in the audience doing something. So the investigation ended in 2005 with a 233-page inconclusive report. We, we just were just like lighting money on fire. Right? <laughs> um, so back to the story that you heard. In 2014, Siegfried and Roy go on Entertainment Tonight to tell the world what really happened. Sure. So here, we're going to watch a little piece of that. So this is 11 years after the mauling, and this is Roy post as much rehab as... As he was going to get. October 3rd, 2003, Roy Horn near death and rushed into emergency surgery. There's been so many different versions that you hear of what actually happened. All wrong. They're all wrong. Despite what you may have heard about what happened between Roy and the 600-pound Bengal tiger named Montecor, the men say the truth has never been accurately reported before. He passed out. He passed out on stage. You passed out before the incident. I I got a stroke when I fall down. And I seen his blue eyes still looking at me. I thought, now what happened? So he did what every cat do when she has a little. He picked me up by the neck and brought me, came me to, to the side for you know. Like a mother safe. with a cub. Oh yeah, he, he wanted to care me. He said my my artery was absolutely blessing because that's released the blood pressure. How about you will be brain dead? You're saying the doctor's saying that had Montecor not relieved the pressure, you would not have lived. Yeah, this really be, is like my dad's story about the, the pregnant lady and the wolf. <laughs> he knew that Roy was having a stroke and relieved the pressure on his brain. Yeah. I died clinically three times on the operation table. 
Wow. And but you're still here on kicking. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <All right. laughs> Roy maintains an amazing attitude, and he never blamed Montecor for what happened. Montecor. Because it wasn't Montecor's fault. Passed away just about three months ago. And my brother. Your brother. I know you've actually called him your blood brother. Oh, yeah. He had my blood and I had his blood. The accident impaired... Naturally, no one's really buying that story. <laughs> because it's complete bullshit. <laughs> Which really just attracted more attention and suspicion. So, you know, now we have the podcast. We have so many shows, yeah. specials, documentaries. Here's a quick little clip um, from an HLN series called How It Really Happened. Or this is the um, trailer for that. How It Really Happened. Siegfried and Roy. Siegfried and Roy were really spectacular at what they did. They were sort of bigger than life in so many ways until the bite. Our top story takes us to Las Vegas where entertainer Roy Horn of Siegfried and Roy the superstar mauled by one of his beloved tigers. I was always terrified by their act. Those animals in that close proximity to humans Terrifying. I mean, Pendulette's kind of an asshole, but he's right in this context. Yeah. I mean, the audience was never safe. That was the biggest illusion. Yes. Dress part. Are you kidding me? Yeah. It was how they spun the story, how they created the myth. Is this man going to survive? That's what attracts me, is that danger, the underlying danger all the time. It's Sin City. It doesn't want to expose all of its secrets. What were they protecting? No, that's not possible. There was just no going back. It's not all magical. Honestly, you're, that's an extremely good point that they are very lucky that in t- whatever, 10,000 shows that yeah. only Roy was mauled. A hundred percent. And not one of the, uh, one of the guests. Or a hundred guests. Right. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean that didn't that didn't even really occur to me as like the tiger turns to the right and sees like a like a breakfast buffet and hundred like I, I don't I'm definitely not saying that Roy deserved it, but Roy was the one putting his head in the tiger's mouth every day. Right. So like if right. he's gonna get like if anyone's gonna get mauled, it should be that guy. But like millions of people probably narrowly avoided getting guilt yeah it's crazy my guess is probably that the animal handler's account is the most true that would have to imagine right maybe it was a combination i mean maybe there was a weird scent and (laughs) there's so anything is possible when there's variables with animals Yeah. yeah it's literally a fucking miracle that this is the first time it happened yes and and like the more that you go incident free the more the more the luckier you are the easier it is to mistake for skill right i mean they were so cocky yeah i don't know and it killed them three times on that table over more than five thousand shows the las vegas legends performed flawlessly and so did see flawlessly right not luckily yeah That is until Roy Horn's 59th birthday in 2003, when in the middle of a performance at the MGM Grand, a 400-pound Siberian tiger named Manticore pounced on the magician, biting his neck 
and ending the iconic duo's career. The sound was just, I remember just being so loud. They must have been loud, children loud. when they were Now, there. 16 years later, one of the men behind the Tigers is speaking out, saying what he thinks happened during that infamous incident. In a new interview with The Hollywood Reporter, animal trainer Chris Lawrence tells the magazine they didn't like making mistakes and never owned them of in not. front of an audience. The legendary magicians, known for their animal illusions, told investigators at the time and the public that Roy had suffered a stroke on stage, prompting Manticore to lunge. So you think that he picked you up as tigers do, their yeah. cubs? With the cubs, yeah. You felt nothing. But like they heard him screaming. But now, according right. to The Hollywood Reporter, Lawrence acknowledges that Roy had a stroke, but says it happened as a result of that attack. Lawrence also lays the blame for the incident on Roy's own human error, saying instead of walking Manticore in a circle, as is usually done, he just used his arm to steer him right back into his body, adding, by Roy not following the correct procedure, it fed into confusion and rebellion. Investigators found the tiger blameless, and he later returned to Siegfried and Roy's home, showing ABC's Elizabeth Vargas how close their bond remained. But Lawrence tells The Hollywood Reporter that bond had weakened in the years cycle. leading up to the his attack. Face in a lion's mouth. I am positive that Roy's diminishing relationship yeah. with Manticore was a key factor in the attack. Siegfried and Roy's show, which ran for 13 years and drew in $45 million a year, is now long since shuttered. They did but not also respond because to of Lawrence's their show and because their show is like part of the shtick is like it's his first night on stage News, that like lends to the misinformation no of what Again, happened. this is Lawrence's version of the right. events. He says he's speaking out now because he has struggled ever since that attack. He's been diagnosed with PTSD. He's battled alcoholism and suicidal thoughts. It has been over 15 years. He says he lives it every day. He lives it every night. It still haunts him. In fact, his wife says that a part of her husband, the animal handler, died that mm. night. Wow. Well, right. in 2020, Roy story. passed away from complications from COVID. Wow. Well, I thought that he died way earlier than that. Nope. Wow. Siegfried released a statement. The world has lost one of the greats of magic, but I have lost my best friend. From the moment we met, I knew Roy and I together would change the world. There could be no Siegfried without Roy and no Roy without Siegfried. It's not wrong. <laughs> I'm going back to the cruise ship. In 2021, Siegfried died at 81 of pancreatic cancer. We're going to listen to a little clip of their final interview 16 years after the incident jeez 16 years after the incident you've been in each other's lives for <laughs> jet black hair years. still i said yeah. i love you so and he says if i would have to do it again i would do everything again the Jesus same way Christ. i regret nothing Whatever happened on stage that night, it was the end of an electrifying era on the Vegas Strip. The German duo, who dazzled audiences for years, brought their magic back to the stage only one other time after the incident, yet never stopped believing in the magic they created for the millions who made Siegfried and Roy Vegas royalty. In 2022, the city of Las Vegas voted to demolish Siegfried and Roy's estate and put in 400 plus unit condo development i mean like yeah that's like in low-income housing is 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 very good and important but like maybe do an animal sanctuary sanctuary too 
Yeah, people were pissed that they weren't doing a park or something. Yeah. They said like we need more space for our kids to Little Bavaria. Have fun and, yeah. Uh so on that note, we're going out today. <sighs> oh Jesus Christ. <laughs> what a weird one. Okay, fine. <laughs> Where can people find us on the internet? Find us on the internet uh, on Instagram and Twitter at Lyrics for Lunch and for longer and weirder stuff. Lyricsforlunch at gmail.com. If you want to support the show, go to lyricsforlunch.com and click support the show. And let us know how we're doing. And tune in next week when we do this all over again with a new song. I think I want to type. I think I'm going to do one that is even more loosely connected to a song than this one, which is like very, very loosely connected. To how song. is this loose? The song is sacred and right. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. Um, but until then, I'm Uri Rubenstein. I'm Lindsay Tucker. Saying, don't take tigers, tigers out of their habitat and <laughs> put your head in their mouth and then expect not to get bitten. It took my girl away Now don't it always seem to go That you don't know what you got Till it's gone To be in paradise Put up a fucking line Hey nah nah Don't it always seem to go That you don't know what you got Till it's gone To be in paradise Put up a fucking line Why not they pay paradise To put up Hey, 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 pay paradise and put up a parking